Standard The Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, it's interesting, David, how we focus so much on UFOs in the beginning of the show, really as the first few episodes. Do you think that's your most compelling interest so far? Well, you know, Gene, the truth of the matter is that I have a lot of interests in the realm of the paranormal. We're going to talk tonight about an experience I had, but uh, you're, I, I have indeed been holding back on you, my friend, and in fact... As we move deeper into the show, you're going to find that I have had an interesting range of experiences, and we're going to have other friends of mine come on and talk about some of these shared experiences. I've, I, I think I, I would call myself fortunate. I've been fortunate enough to have experienced some, um, some pretty mind-bending stuff, Gene. And what we're going to talk about tonight is one of the, the bigger things that's happened to me, and big in many ways. But it is indeed a UFO encounter, and it's not, it's not a subtle one. It's one that um, has left a, last, a, a lasting impression upon me, and our listeners are going to find out why. It, it wasn't, we, I didn't just see a light in the sky. I saw something a little more significant than that. Well, you became today, instead of being a co-host of the show, you became the guest with your brother, Barry. What can yeah. you tell our listeners about Barry? We just identified him as your brother, but we didn't state what profession he's involved in, what his background is. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a briefing about that. Well, uh, it's, it, it's kind of interesting. He started originally as an EMT, an emergency medical technician, and um, then after a while of doing that, I think he was doing that for about five years, he got into computers, and these days he is an MIS director for the Seminole Indian Tribe in Florida. So when you go and you um, spend money in one of the casinos down in uh, southern Florida, chances are my brother's somewhere in that building. He's checking to make sure you're not hacking the computer systems to get in and get that money. <laughs> exactly. Oh, is that all Windows then? Uh, yeah, and uh, it, it, he, he's actually had Macs before, but because he works with Windows day in and day out, that that is what he tends to have at home. And he's kind of he's one of those kind of guys that he he's not obsessed with the computer stuff. Maybe the way you and I are. He's to him it's it's more of a tool though. He actually he's very knowledgeable about computers. And in fact, the two Windows machines that I have and that I own and use every day, Barry built for me. Oh, so he's like he's my Windows tech. Okay, so he's a technology oriented person. So absolutely. So having this kind of experience must have intrigued him on a number of levels, especially because he was eight years old at the time. Did this, do you think, have a lasting effect on him? I don't see how this kind of a thing couldn't have a lasting effect on anyone, Gene. I mean, these experiences, whether we're talking about UFO encounters or, you know, seeing ghosts or experiencing any kind of paranormal event, they do tend to have a very strong effect. And this is something that, I mean, it's become clear to me over the years that a large part of who I am today was to some degree forged by these experiences. They, they tend to open your mind up in ways that people who don't have these experiences just, they, they don't go to the same place in their lives. You know, and, and the thing about this is that in today's world, really what's happened is that religion for a lot of people has become their main mystical outlet. You know, as, as, as a society, we seem to have lost, at least this is my opinion, we seem to have lost an interest in the unknown in many ways. I mean, people are so caught up in everyday life, you know, paying their mortgages, taking care of their kids, having careers, that they sort of modularize and compartmentalize 
any kind of mysticism that comes across their lives. But when you have these kinds of experiences, Gene, they, they, they do indeed change you forever, and I think you'll find out that this has definitely been the case for my brother. And it's, it's the reason that you and I are talking about this today. Well, you know, it's interesting here. I'm in an unusual position, as I say, and we'll be saying in that interview, and that is I have not had any of these experiences for myself except for one thing, which was an almost experience. And what I mean by an almost experience, as you probably know, many of our listeners know, I was married twice, and my first wife, by the way, we separated and broke up on friendly terms, which doesn't always happen. My first wife and I were sleeping downstairs in the living room in a home that we rented in southeast Pennsylvania, which is also a focal point of a lot of strange activities. And she wakes me up one morning and says, hey, I just saw a water elemental. And I kind of looked and I just saw in the distance something, I don't know, like a floating smoke thing, just very vague, and it could have been my imagination, maybe I was half asleep. But she saw it, she noticed it, that was as close as I could get. However... However, there's a lot more to it than that. Over the years, people have called me kind of a focal point because I bring lots of people together who have various interests. Over my time, I've worked for magazines, published my own magazines on these subjects, and I get involved with a large number of people who are experts on the subject or experiencers, as we say. So that's been my participation to kind of bring it all together, and maybe it's not quite as good or as interesting or as intriguing as having an experience myself, but sometimes I feel a little deprived, you know? <laughs> well, how can you not be fascinated by this stuff, right? I mean, this is, again, the, these questions of the unknown, I think that in many ways these questions drive society over the long term, Gene. And, you know, again, religion being one major expression of that desire to understand who we are, our place in the universe. And I have to tell you, I mean, it's because of this show and my involvement with it that I've decided to speak about these topics. I mean, I have for many years really been very quiet about discussing any of this for, for fairly obvious reasons. You know, I mean, after tonight, it's a good possibility that a bunch of my friends are going to call me and say, you know, we knew you were weird before, but man, this is just completely over the top. And the thing is that I sometimes wonder if this experience and others that I've had have made me the strange monkey that I am, or, or you know, how these things have really influenced me in, in, in that way of expanding my worldview, making me humble in terms of understanding that when it comes right down to a gene, we don't really know that much about how the universe works. We think we do. But we don't, do we? Well, we always think we know a lot, and then five years later we know more. And this is just something that's happened throughout history. But you raise a larger issue here. I'm going to hit you with it. I know you're not going to tell me the information now. The word experience is plural. Now, we're going yes. to be hearing in just a very few minutes about what happened to you back in the 1970s, you and your brother Barry. Right. And we have David Twitchell, who is a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, and he's going to be talking about some of his experiences after he interrogates you and Barry about what happened to you. But now there's something else going on there, David. Can you give us a hint? Well, I'll give you a clue, Gene. This particular sighting we're going to talk about tonight was not my first, and it was also not my last. There were more than a couple. And um, this one was the one that had the largest number of co-witnesses. But there were others. And um, there was one that had happened in Jersey 
a few years, or actually it was a couple of years before we moved to Venezuela, that um, in some ways was more extreme than the one we're going to talk about tonight. I'm not really ready to talk about it yet. It, it wasn't, I'll just qualify this right now, it was not an abduction scenario. So let's get that out of the way. All right, you have um, not been abducted. To my knowledge, I have not been abducted. I sometimes, okay. I sometimes think that maybe one day there'll be a bunch of crazy, sexy female aliens that will abduct me for experiments. But un until that happens, uh, no, I haven't been abducted. And well, you're hoping I, that they do the right kind of experiments then. Well, you know, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> okay, well, we won't even want to get into this. This show is not explicit. There, no. But, but I, have had, I have had other experiences, Gene, and more interesting than that, my range of experiences is it also extends outside of UFOs. There have been some other types of experiences. At some point, maybe later this year, we're going to have an old friend of mine from Florida come on and talk about something that he and I went through that, um, as I think about it, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, well, before anybody else stands up yeah. and says, why hasn't my commercial run on your show, let's break, <laughs> and then we're going to hear David and Barry Biedney and David Twitchell about a UFO encounter that occurred in the 1970s in Caracas, Venezuela. You're in the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. This is a very unusual session of the Paracast. Because we have three guests participating with me here. One of them, of course, is David Bietney, who has become the guest right now because of an experience that he's going to talk about with his brother, Barry Bietney. And we also have a field investigator from Michigan MUFON, David Twishel, who's joining us today. And he's going to help in the interrogation of these two witnesses, trying to bring out the details to find out what really happened in Venezuela back in the 1970s when these two were teens. So, uh, David, w because you're the first victim that we've put aside for this particular session, can you begin to express exactly what happened to you at that time? Well, Gene, this was the summer of 1974. I'm pretty sure it was July of 1974. Uh, my brother, my mother, father, and myself had moved to Caracas in June of 74. We were um, living in a hotel right near the center of the city. And um, one night, we went out to dinner, relatively early dinner. I think we had gotten out of dinner at about 6 o'clock, somewhere, somewhere around there. It was, uh, it was still very light out, even though it was uh, you know, sort of an after-dinner kind of a thing. We were walking back to the hotel, and um, my memory of it was that my mother stopped in her tracks and she actually said Lou what's that and Lou being my father we, we, we you know we stopped we looked up and there in the sky there was this 
huge cigar-shaped ship, sort of the the archetype of the of the cigar-shaped craft. It was moving in the in the sky very slowly, very very slowly. And the thing I want to qualify about this was that it was kind of hard to tell how high it was because the the size of the thing was so large that there was no real reference to figure out, you know, how high is that thing in the air? Usually when you see an airplane in the sky, because you're familiar with the scale of the real airplane, you have a good idea for how high the thing is. That's not what was going on with this cigar-shaped craft. It was it was huge, that I knew, but this thing was moving very slowly for maybe a minute or two. It was about a couple of minutes, and then it stopped. And it just basically stopped dead. I also want to qualify, there was no sound coming out of this thing, completely silent. It stops dead in the air, and I remember kind of, oh, I had this feeling of sort of dread, like, what, what is this thing doing? The next memory I have is that there was this light underneath of it, right almost in the middle of it, and out of this light fly three, I remember being three disc-shaped crafts, three sort of archetypical UFOs, flying saucers. They came out of the bottom of this thing, and compared to the cigar, they were tiny, which, again, to me, reinforced how big this thing was. Two of them moved to what I guess would have been the front of this thing in terms of the direction it was moving. The other one flew towards the back. They all kind of flew into this triangulation position. They stopped, and then, sort of as if someone had a light switch, the whole thing went out. It was essentially gone. Barry, what do you remember about it? Well, what I remember specifically, it, it was July. It was 1974. I remember, for some reason, I have very good memories about the specifics of where we were. Because I guess it's helped that I have been back to Caracas several times since the incident, as, as shortly as last October. But we were actually, as David said, finishing dinner, and we were actually stopping by a pharmacy, which was near the hotel, to get my mother some, some aspirin or something like that. As we were leaving the pharmacy and going down the steps, my mother did say, Lou, what the hell is that, actually? And Lou was looking up, and we all looked up, and, and, and much like David, his description, there was this very large cigar-shaped object. The, the thing that impacted me, me the most was the absolute dead silence. There was no sound. And I remember, even at eight years old, I couldn't comprehend how something so large in the sky that wasn't a balloon, obviously, was quiet. And I just stood there in amazement, and once again, in agreement with David, a light shone from underneath the object. I remember three lights. I don't remember them to be dish-shaped. That part's a little vague, but I do emphatically remember the three lights coming out of this, this ship and position themselves around this large cigar. It's funny because it, it sounds perhaps hokey, but even at the age of eight, I think I realized that I was seeing something that I was probably never going to see again in my life. I remember my brother actually taking my mother's eyeglasses off <laughs> because she had a real strong prescription that he could see real well with, and putting on her eyeglasses, <laughs> I steps. Oh boy! I remember running around to the building to get a better angle and to see this thing. And by the time I got to an angle where I thought I would have the 
and seeing this object, it was gone. So then I started jogging back after I lost sight of this thing because it simply wasn't in the sky. And I asked David where to go. And, they, and remember, they, it went away. And then people started pulling up in the street asking us if we had seen this. You know, all these different cars, you know, looking up in the sky, asking us where it went, if we had seen where it went. And, and we were all baffled. One of the things that was really odd about this, Gene, that I have a very distinct memory of, is that while we were watching this, cars were stopping in the middle of the street, people were shouting and pointing. There were a lot of people seeing this, and it was making people very agitated. People were, were scared. They were excited, but they were a little freaked out. And again, it, the size, I think, of this thing is what made people really concerned. This thing was just massive. And... I remember a lot of shouting in Spanish. There's something we need to qualify here. Barry and I, neither of us spoke Spanish at the time. My father was the only one who was fluent in Spanish. The other thing I remember was that a lot of people in the hotel had seen it, and we were basically down in the lobby of the hotel until very late that night talking about this. People were very animated, and again, they were very agitated. Everybody realized that something very odd had happened. This was very unusual. And one other note I want to add. The next morning, we asked my father to get the papers to see if there was anything about this in the local newspapers. And there was one particular paper, Dos Mil Una, which is the Spanish word for 2001. They had a story on this article with a lot of details, including the fact that the then president of Venezuela... Carlos Andres Perez had had some dinner party going on in the presidential palace, which was about a mile away from where we were, and everybody there had seen it too. So there was indeed that one newspaper article. I, I'm pretty sure that there was another newspaper called El Nacional that also had an article on the same the same incident. So this was a, definitely a mass sighting. The El Dos Miluno article referenced thousands of people seeing this thing. To my knowledge, I've searched on the web. There doesn't seem to be anything out there in terms of uh, even the MUFON database about this incident. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and David and his brother Barry join us to talk about an incredible sighting they had in Caracas, Venezuela back in the 1970s. We're being joined by Michigan MUFON field investigator David Twitchell. And by the way, you can find out more about one of David's projects at ufoimplications.com. And that's a book, David, right? Yes, it's referring to... Uh my second book, actually, uh, Global Implications of the UFO Reality. Right. Now, having listened so far to this, do you have any surface impressions or questions that intrigue you about what happened? Well, now, both of these gentlemen may have mentioned, first of all, I wanted to ask David how old he was at the time. I was 11 years old, and Barry was 11. 8. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, 
Do you remember, you mentioned something about the altitude. You couldn't tell how high the thing was, or could you guess yeah. the It you could had not to tell. be thousands of feet up. I mean, I would guess no less than maybe five, six, seven thousand feet up. Um, just in terms of the atmospheric density that I could see between us and the ship, this notion of atmospheric volume um, being something that makes it clear to one that something is further away than closer, there seemed to be a good amount of atmospheric volume between us and this ship. Which tells that's what tells me it wasn't hundreds of feet up, it was thousands of feet up. Again, I'd have to guess between five and eight thousand feet up. Was it above the clouds, sir? My memory was that it was a very clear evening. I don't remember there being clouds in the sky. It was fairly blue sky. And had the sun set? No. No. Where the sun was, was the sun on the horizon? I'm not I can't tell you exactly where the sun was, but it was, you know, none of the traffic lights come on, none of the street lamps. Uh, you know, it was, again, around 6 to 6 in in July in South America, still pretty light outside. I mean, it was dark. It was pre-twilight. It was what? I would say it was before twilight. It was it was still fairly light out. Okay. Yeah. Did either one of you notice a, uh, I know, Barry, that you were 8 at the time, so it was a little hard, but uh, did either one of you notice any kind of light or aura? around this uh, craft? I can't say honestly that I recall. No, I don't think there was. I, I remember, I'll tell you what I do remember about the surface of this thing was that it wasn't reflecting any light. It seemed like it was very matte. Yes, so, I agree yeah, with that. Right? There wasn't any reflectivity to it. There wasn't any uh, specular highlights on it, you know, like sharp of light. It almost completely dark. And um, and no, there was definitely no sort of an aura around it. That changed when this light underneath appeared. It was almost if if I had to guess something. There was an opening that 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 happened, and some amount of light from inside spilled out. And that was kind of the the way that this light underneath of it looked, and almost like a hatch open. Did the uh, smaller objects appear to come from that hatch, or? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, they did. Okay. Yeah. Holding a, say, a quarter at arm's length or a dime, what object would you be holding at arm's length would uh, just cover that object? Okay, I'm doing this right here in front of me, my arm in front of me. Um, you'd have. What object are we talking about? Are we talking this about the ship or the smaller ships? No, the, the larger ship, the uh, cigar-shaped object. Imagine holding a salami. Okay. Okay, like okay. like it was that big. So oh if if I held a salami, a full size salami at arm's length in front of me, that's how much of the sky it, it was and a small. One, and that was thousands of feet in the air. You you see, this is where my brother and I have different recollections, because I do remember it being that large, hmm. but I always assumed because I remember it being that size, that it was much lower. Mm-hmm. I believe the object was like maybe two to three thousand feet. Now, granted, this is looking back thirty years through the eyes of an eight-year-old boy. Right. But one thing that I kept carried with me, whenever I recall the story, is I always believed it was a lot lower than that because it was so large. Let me I just interject with a question, Barry and David, and that is, did you get a chance to sit down with your parents and go over all the details to get them straight in your mind as to what happened? 
Oh, I think so. We we didn't talk about anything else for the next couple of days. Okay. <laughs> Especially that night in the lobby of the hotel, and we basically were up. I remember going late into the night, early into the morning. I think it's it's pretty easy to understand why we might you know have different perceptions height and the size of this thing. Um, but w the thing that I really remember was just that it was. It was too big to be in the sky. That's what I remember. It's like my no, there was no reference point. We're looking up in the sky and seeing something that big and thinking, "Oh yeah, that belongs there." This thing was so big, it didn't belong in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's and, nice. What well, was there though? So I guess they didn't agree with you. And you say that this 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 object you mentioned. I think it was Barry that mentioned that there were there was no sound. Is, is that the lack of sound? I remember, you know, being an eight-year-old boy, you saw something in the sky, it either sounded like a helicopter or it sounded like a jet. Mm -hmm. And there was just no sound. It was just a... And that's, that's another thing that amazed me, because once again, from my perspective, I thought it was so low that I should be able to hear it. How and different nothing. It was, it was just devoid of any sound. How different from a uh, blimp or Zeppelin was it, in shape or in size? Well, having seen Zeppelins, one thing I should start by saying is I lived in Caracas a lot longer than my brother did. I lived there from 1974 to 1980, and in those eight years, I never saw a Zeppelin in Caracas. I didn't see my first Zeppelin until I moved back to the States in 1981. So it's not like zeppelins were common or or blimps were a common sight in Caracas. They simply they didn't exist. Now that you know what zeppelins look like or blimps look like, uh, how would you compare uh, a zeppelin or blimp to to the object you saw, or what made it look different? Uh, several things. The, the one thing that, as my brother mentioned, was it was absolutely matte, for lack of a better word. It didn't reflect light. It was just dark. Almost, for lack of a better word, as I remember, it was almost surreally dark. It, it, I remember that's one thing that left an impression on me. It was just so black, and, and nothing reflected off of it. Uh, it was also larger than any Zeppelin I've ever seen. And it moved... When I see Zeppelins, Zeppelins tend to have a slower movement. This did move at a fairly consistent pace, faster than I would have seen a Zeppelin move. And I've seen plenty of, when I say Zeppelin, I mean blimps. I've seen plenty of blimps move down here, and it moved much faster than a blimp could. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney and David and his brother Barry are talking with us today about an incredible 
sighting they had back in the 1970s in Caracas, Venezuela. And helping with the interrogation of these two witnesses is David Twitchell. He's a field investigator for the Michigan branch of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. And Barry, you were continuing the explanation of this. Go ahead. In my opinion, that's how it, how it deferred from, from blimps that I've you know, seen over the last 20 years. Did you see any windows along the, uh, the structure? None. What about Absolutely you, Absolutely not. Yeah, like Barry said, the, the thing was basically completely dark or devoid of any actual detail itself. There, there were no windows. There were no surface markings of any sort that could be seen. Did this object seem to uh, change in size as if it were expanding or contracting or look like it was breathing, so to speak? The, the size of this thing remained very consistent throughout the whole sighting. Um, it didn't look like it changed scale. Something that I also remember very specifically was that this thing was moving at a fairly steady pace and it stopped on a dime. It just, and, and that was one of the reasons that I had dread in me when I saw it stop. I had never seen anything moving in the air stop like that. It was just, it was, it was, you know, your brain again has of reference. And when you see something where there is no point of reference, your brain kind of says, what the hell is that? It was moving at a fairly steady pace and it stopped on a dime. I've never seen a blimp do quite like that. A blimp will slow down and then gradually come to a stop. This thing just stopped. Now, this may seem like an inconsequential question, but uh, to try to remember, you say you were going right after dinner, around 6 o'clock, is that it? Something like that. Okay. And you went for this walk to the pharmacy, and then it was on your way back that you, you witnessed this object, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. After witnessing it, what was the duration of, uh, how long did you stand there and witness it? For? I'm going to guess it was uh, three or four minutes. Three or four minutes. What do you think, Barry? I recall it being short of that, but then again, I was the idiot who decided to run to get a better view. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent about two minutes running to get a better vantage point. And you missed all the good stuff then. I saw enough to leave an impression. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, I was shorter, so I needed. I knew if I could just get around the corner, I could see this thing better. <laughs> so uh, definitely within five minutes was the duration of the sighting. Yeah. I would say, I remember being fairly less than that, at least from my vantage point, probably a minute and a half from my experience. About how long after the sighting did you hang around that area talking with others or discussing it amongst yourselves before you continued to walk home? Probably a few minutes. And I want to add something here. You know, once these smaller ships went into position and the whole thing sort of vanished, I had this gut feeling, and maybe I was just being completely freaked out, I felt it was still there. But we just couldn't see it. And I was, like, planted to the spot. Now, remember, there were all these people around us yelling at each other and grabbing each other and talking to each other. I remember looking up at the sky and thinking, is this thing going to reappear? I kind of I felt it was still there. And I remember all this activity around me, my, my mother and father speaking to people around us. And we were probably there for another two, three minutes. 
And then we went back to the hotel. Okay. And do you remember what time it was when you got back home? Uh, it's probably, you know, I want to guess 20 after 6, 6.30. It's really hard to know the exact times. Okay. And again, it, the, the, the hotel was only a couple of blocks away from where we were. Yeah. Well, what I was shooting at there was uh, missing time. <laughs> yes, I was thinking mm. about that. Uh, <laughs> So it doesn't really appear that there would be much missing time, if any. No. No, so, no unfortunately not. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, they didn't grab you, David. Sorry. <laughs> no, they didn't. Maybe they did. Maybe they looked at you and wanted to put you back. <laughs> Throw that one back. It's not big enough yet. That's right. No, actually, they like the small ones. You know, they start when you're very young. And in all seriousness, yes. ladies and gentlemen, they start when the missing time happens when people are very young. And a lot of times those encounters persist till they're older, but that's another subject. And so we think well, long ago and far away. Sure about that. I I think I don't know. I haven't been, I haven't been abducted yet. I'm too old. <laughs> well, is there any other uh, part of this story that you'd like to tell? Well, one of the things I do want to mention, guys, is that I've spoken with Barry about Barry, who has friends down in Caracas. Um, as he said, he just went down to a reunion uh, last October. I've asked Barry if he could contact his friends down there to see if there's any way to get over to the offices of uh, Dos Mil Uno or El Nacional and find uh, to see if if there's any way that they still have microfilm of the issues of the papers from that month. One thing that I do know for sure, and, and Barry reminded me that it was Dos Miluno, they had a front page story on this thing. Um, and it was a pretty extensive story with a good number of details. And uh, that must still exist somewhere. And that's something that I, I've asked Barry to if, see if there's any way you can have some friends down there look into this. And David, perhaps there's some way that MUFON can use its uh, web of contacts to see if there's somebody down there who can perhaps help us in digging up this newspaper piece, which to me uh, would be a, a, obviously of interest yeah. because it has a lot more details and, and proof uh, that this happened to us in, in terms of there being something in writing. Obviously not physical proof, but a, uh, an well, indication I... that indeed there was this mass sighting that involved uh, a lot of people. Certainly the hundreds of people who were on the street around us. important to understand that in, in Venezuela, after dinner on a, sun, a summer night, at that time, people didn't sit around and watch TV. They went out to walk. There were a lot of people out on the street. And what it was kind of weather is this in that time of year in, in Venezuela? Oh, just remember it being an absolutely crystal blue sky. No clouds in the sky. What temperatures? Uh, well, Gene... If I may interject, Caracas is called the city of eternal spring. It it's almost usually like 76 to 79 degrees. Oh boy! And like 40 percent humidity. It's I'm, really I'm, I'm missing it right now. I'm tempted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially David Twitchell lives in Michigan. Oh really? Yes. Yeah. It's snowing out here right now. Oh boy. Uh -huh. <laughs> that makes it difficult. You know, in the mid-1970s, uh, there was a large UFO flap all over the world, but especially in South America, Venezuela, Me uh, Mexico, and uh, 
this type of, of craft has been uh, seen before, although I haven't seen this particular, you know, on this date or month in that year. I've been doing a little digging the last couple of days myself. But uh, the 70s, between 72 and 75, there were a lot of UFO sightings. There are a lot of UFO sightings today in uh, Mexico and in, and in South America, more so than in America. And America has, uh, surprisingly, you know, thousands of, of UFO sightings. Not that they're all extraterrestrial craft, but we find that about 80% of the UFO reports, you know, I saw a light in the sky, that type of thing, mm. are misidentifications. 1%. A surprising one, low one percent is our hoaxes, and but it's that other nineteen percent that are what we call unknowns. We're not going to stick our necks out and say they are definitely extraterrestrial craft, although there's much evidence to suggest that that's exactly what they are, either uh, extraterrestrial or other dimensional. And one one aspect of the other dimensional theory is that these, what we perceive as a cigar-shaped object, that's the reason I asked you if you saw it change size as if it was breathing, is that it's a rip in the, the uh, space-time continuum from where from which these objects appear. And it's you've heard the uh, old explanation of taking a piece of paper and folding it, and instead of going from one end of the paper to the other, you fold it to where you're just automatically there or a wormhole, or a black hole, a vortex from which these, uh, these objects uh, enter into our physical reality. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Before we progress with this, let me tell everybody you're in the Paracast. With Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're joined by Barry Bietney, David and Barry talking about the sighting they had in Venezuela back in the 1970s when a UFO flap was going on. We also have David E. Twitchell. He's a field investigator for the Michigan branch of the Mutual UFO Network. And he's sharing us with his knowledge, and he's also sharing his opinions about what might have happened here. Let's go back to this interdimensional thing, because this raises a larger issue. 
David Twitchell, and that is that back in the 50s and 60s, people who covered the UFO phenomenon were talking largely in the sense of, well, they're coming from some planet in our solar system, and maybe that possibility is increasing now. They've found some stuff on some of the moons of Saturn, like gushing water and all that, and possibly coming from another star system. But then this interdimensional thing has been in and out of the subject, especially since the late 60s. And I'm interested that you consider this as a viable possibility. Do you think that there are more than single sources for UFOs, that we may have space people, we may have interdimensional people, we may have other combinations thereof? Uh, early in my uh, investigative years, shall I say, a gentleman by the name of David K. Wood, who... Uh, who with Landy Malice wrote a book called The uh, the Other Sky. I asked him, are these uh, beings, uh, these craft and beings, uh, extraterrestrial, other dimensional, or extraterrestrial coming through another dimension? And his answer was yes, yes, and yes. Uh, he was a lifetime uh, abductee, and he had seen many uh, uh, UFOs and uh, many beings also. And he tragically died young of uh, cancer. However, uh, the answer to the question is all of the above. They come from all over. I mean, we are just a. We used to think years ago that, from our point of perception, that we were the center of the of the universe and everything revolved around us. And anything up there in the sky was God's heaven. But now we know that we're just a little island, a little ball of mud in a, in a vast universe. And who are we to think that we're the only things gone? You know, if we're the best that God can do, <laughs> help me, you know? It's sort of but the I, ultimate statement of human vanity that, uh, yes. that we think that somehow we could be the only life. Now, now I want to add a couple of things to this, David. The, the notion that you were talking about of this interdimensional jump. The book A Wrinkle in Time discusses this notion of a tesseract, which um, is, is what you were describing, a way to fold time space so that you can move between two points sort of a, in a shortcut. And that's the first time I ever heard the term tesseract, and it was specifically uh, described in the way that you were describing how you may travel between dimensions. This cigar object that we saw looked very solid did not look in any way ethereal it didn't pulse there was no modulation to it it looked like a solid object in the sky the the only point where that changed is when it vanished when these three ships positioned themselves around it in hindsight if i had to guess in hindsight what we saw these three ships positioned themselves in a way where they could then bend around this thing so it would be invisible. As I said, I, I had a gut feeling it was still there after it vanished. There, there is one theory that uh, light is bent around the object so that we're not seeing, actually seeing through the object, but seeing around the object. Right. But most recently... We're finding um, uh, there there is technologies. The Japanese have invented technologies where uh, 
invisibility, invisibility technology, where uh, you can, you know, it's kind of a, a trick of uh, projector and camera and that type of thing. But I'm actually step, familiar with this. Yeah, okay. It's a step in, in, in the right direction. Also, we're finding that if you speed up uh, energy to the... Uh, to a very high point, it will be invisible because it will be in the uh, infrared or ultraviolet spectrum, which is beyond our ability to to perceive with our with our narrow range of uh, of perception. Yet it is there, and uh, there have been a lot of uh, UFO uh, sighting reports where these invisible UFOs appear or transparent UFOs where you can see the outline of the craft be it uh, triangular or cigar shaped or disc shaped you can see outside and the inside of it you can see stars or the moon or whatever is be behind it as it passes over as if it was made out of uh, cellophane mm -hmm. and th this at first blush seems to be uh, just totally impossible but we're finding now that uh, if the energy is such it can go into the ultra ultraviolet spectrum and we can't see it but it's there and that may well have been what what you were witnessing it's possible <laughs> there are also I've also seen pictures of cigar shaped craft and they don't look like a, a hole in the sky at all no they look like solid craft so, yes. So I think both may be true, the solid craft more than the. Although I did have a, a sighting in 1962 where 500 feet in the air, an object simply emerged from nothingness hmm. and came and hovered over our over our home. Was seen by hundreds of people in the Detroit area and reported, and just like you, my father went out the next day, gets a newspaper, and uh, they already had an explanation for us. What we'd seen really? was the northern lights. Now, this was a structured craft, a block long, city block long, yeah. with huge, round, multicolored, stadium-sized lights underneath. It parked over our house for 15 minutes, and they're trying to tell us we saw the northern lights. But I realized at the time two things. And I was 14 at the time. One, these things exist. Two, they're trying to cover it up. They're not trying to tell me or my family what we saw was the Northern Lights because we knew the difference. They're trying to tell you who did not see this object. And now who are you going to believe? You know? You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're joined by David's brother, Barry. We're talking about a very fascinating UFO encounter they had back in the 1970s in Caracas, Venezuela. And now we're exploring the larger issue of possible UFO reality, interdimensional UFOs. We also have MUFON field investigator David E. Twitchell. Okay, folks, let's progress. Well, what I wanted to say, Gene, um, 
what you, you know it's interesting that David Twitchell also had uh, one of these odd experiences uh, this this experience is one that you know I mean Barry and I both were, were fairly young but you know when you have an experience like this it really changes you for the rest of your life and I think a lot of people who have never seen an unidentified object like this have a hard time understanding why people become maybe not obsessed but uh, really sort of wrapped up in this because you know there's this again there was uh, this disconnect between what my eyes were seeing and what my brain knew was possible and there's that moment where your brain says you do not know everything that is possible and your eyes are telling you that right now I remember that feeling and I, there's something else I want to qualify in that and Barry you can you can kind of jump in after this I've not spoken to a lot of people about this sighting I've not you know I've kind of even on the Paracast show I've been sort of playing the role of skeptic and wanting you know saying over and over again that I, I want to arrive at some truths about this I this this episode has you know really changed who I am and I know that what what we saw that evening in Caracas whether it was I can't tell you whether it was extraterrestrial I don't know if it was from another dimension I don't know if it was from our future but what I do know for sure was that it was not technology that we as a civilization currently possess that is not what we saw what we saw was something else what do you think Barry it's funny as you're saying this I'm also re recalling that even at the age of eight when I was seeing this and I'm 40 years old now like you said it left an imprint for life because as I was seeing this I realized it in like a sudden burst of gestalt we're not alone I believe then as I believe now that this was from another world and since that very moment I'm a believer and once again it is difficult because it's not one of those instances where I saw a strange light sky and it moved randomly and perhaps it could have been something else this was a huge object which I can pretty much I laugh now wasn't a secret weapon of the Venezuelan Air Force definitely they, not the Venezuelan yeah. Air Force definitely not yeah. <laughs> so they never claimed to do that and it was something so incredible that I actually feel bad for people who have an experience of something like this because for me I'm not a very religious person but this was truly a an incredible almost religious experience because it said to me the universe is bigger than I understood to be there's other people out and even my own wife I have this discussion with her and while I, I see that she believes me without having shared that incredible experience we'll never be on the same playing field yeah. and, and that's the part I've always told her if I had a time, and I only had one point in time where I could go, it would be then. Because till this day, that has been the most fundamental thing I've ever seen in my life. 
Well put, Barry. I know, I know the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny here, and, and David starts out the show as this skeptic, and we see this sighting that definitely changed his life. You were holding on us, us, David. And that is, I, in all these years, have covered this subject quite extensively, in addition to writing about technology and all the other things I've done since I was 11 years old. I have maintained interest in UFOs and a lot of other stuff. I have never seen one. Not once have I ever seen anything I could not identify and isn't that strange? Because a lot of the people I know did have this experience. So I've had a circle of friends over the years who definitely encountered unusual experiences. Some a lot more complicated than a cigar in the sky and other objects. Really, really strange things. Didn't happen to me. Maybe I'm inviting something now. I don't know. I'll tell you this, Gene. Um... There was a close friend of mine who once said to me that she wished she could be walking in a forest and find a landed craft so that she could know that this was real. Uh, one thing that I remember about that, that episode, and something that stayed with me, was the sense of fear. I, um, when that thing stopped in the sky, my heart, like, stopped. Because, and I said, as I said, it stopped on a dime, and I thought... Oh my God, what is it going to do now? And that fear is something I think a lot of people don't think about when they would have a sighting. It, you know, it's, there's that old saying, beware of what you wish for. You may get it. And um, there have only been a couple of times in my life I've had that kind of But I remember that, that sense of, oh my God, if this thing wanted to, like, destroy us, there's nothing we could do. It wasn't a comfortable feeling. I don't know that a sighting is something you want to have. But that said, like what my brother expressed, it was probably as close to a religious experience as a non-religious person could ever have. Actually, Gene, that was the great thing about being eight then. <laughs> I had no fear. I was absolutely enthralled, and I... If I could have possibly strapped on a jetpack and gotten closer, I would have. Well, of course, they have that character, King of the Rocket Man, in the 1950s, this movie serial, where the guy put on the rocket suit and he'd jump into space. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to get closer to the thing. I was so amazed at it. I had really had no fear, probably because I was a... Oh, I thought it was a vulnerable. That's, that, that's definitely does a lot when you're eight years old now when i was eight years old i remembered okay i'm going to tell you something now okay now that we're in this little little coffee clutch here and we're involved and i guess we're maybe it's a group session let's call it a group session back when i was eight nine ten years old i used to have these crazy dreams of some large black thing and now i interpreted it as an awning because around the block in that neighborhood was a building with an awning, a kind of a dark awning, and that's where the dentist was located. Maybe that's why I didn't like it. But I'd think of this dark awning coming closer to me, and then I'd wake up in fear, sweating, etc., etc. This is a recurring dream that happened when I was between 8 and 10 years old. And none of you, of course, I guess, are capable <laughs> of interpreting my dreams, except to say I'm completely whacked out, but then we accept that. My suggestion would be that you uh, explore it with a, a hypnotist. 
I have thought of that. I have thought of that. In fact, we have talked to a couple of possible people who are involved in an abduction investigation. And I don't say that I was abducted, okay? I don't say at all, but it may be something to explore at some point in time before I get too old. Yeah. Well, my well, sister uh, in later years had a very religious person. And she thought I was wacko for believing in UFOs, even though she had this experience right along with me. She was told it was a northern light, and she was going to accept that because that fit within her worldview. But uh, she's had experiences uh, that waking and in in, uh, in bed that uh, she's just sloughed off as dreams or uh, coincidence, or I don't know what that was, so I'm going to forget about it. And uh, when I wrote my first book, she read it just because her brother wrote it. And uh, she called me and she said, are there any other books out there on UFOs? And I said, yeah, there's a couple. So uh, I gave her uh, Bud Hopkins Witnessed. And uh, if you're familiar with that book? I am, yes. Okay. She reads the book Witness, and she calls me up, and she says, Why is this woman having the same dreams that I'm having? Oh, my. Mm. And the next thing you know, we mm. uh, I took her to a uh, uh, MUFON member who is also a uh, psychiatrist, and he hypnotized her, went back to that uh, 1962 sighting, and it turns out that both her and I were abducted at that point. And she, the hypnotist led her up to the point of seeing the object. And I, I know about hypnosis, so I know he didn't lead her, so to speak. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me break there and tell everybody you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bieden. You were joined by David's brother, Barry. And they were here to talk about their sighting in Caracas, Venezuela, back in the 1970s. And we have also have David E. Twitchell, a field investigator for Michigan Branch of Mutual UFO Network. And he came here first, of course, to help interrogate our guests and learn more about the sighting. But now we're learning about experiences in his lifetime, and he mentions the fact that based on this hypnotic encounter and this experience that appears he and his sister were abducted. Clarify this for me, David Twitchell, at the same moment in time or separately? Uh, at the same time, except they, uh, according to her, she saw me being taken first. And then these two little beings, little gray beings with big bug eyes, came and took her. She remembers what, but she didn't see me. Now, she didn't didn't remember too much except they examined her and then when they led her back i was already back on the lawn and my parents were just standing there looking up it was like everybody was frozen in time and i was taken and she was taken they did whatever they do and returned me then returned her and then all of a sudden we're looking up and the object had had gone and after this smoke and light show we just went back in the house and went to bed. 
ever saying another word about it. So there were other incidences where uh, she explored. There are two other incidences that she explored under hypnosis that uh, she realized that she was abducted. One, one during the day, while she was putting clothes away, she saw this being at her, at her doorway, and she tried to chase it down the hallway. And what she remembers is that she chased it down the hallway, and it disappeared. So she just turned around and walked back into the room and started folding, putting her clothes away again. And under hypnosis, she found that when she got to the end of the hallway, the being and her both went up through the ceiling into a waiting craft. So she is now a believer and a MUFON member. Because now she wants to explore what in the world happened to her. She Do you have a feeling, David, for how many people may have been abducted? Let's assume for the moment, and this is controversial as you know, let's assume for the moment that many of these abduction experiences are genuine. They're not recalling something under hypnosis that didn't really happen. Let's assume they're genuine for the sake of argument. How many people have had this encounter? It seems like an awful lot. It is an awful lot, but... A lot of people, like like you said, won't won't even discuss their uh, UFO sighting reports with other people. This is how the secret is kept in plain sight. People are afraid, uh, fear of ridicule. They won't discuss it. You can imagine how many people have had an abduction experience that simply refuse to talk. And uh, still, there are millions of people who have come forward. I would, uh, you know, there, there are different numbers that are, and it's all guesstimates, but I would say that over the years there are literally millions of people worldwide that have been abducted by different species for different agendas. And I have people say to me, uh, what do these aliens look like? And I'll say, which ones? You know, because there are different uh, species. There are different agendas. Uh, there are benign people and there are malevolent people all over the world. Why would you expect it to be any different throughout God's universe? No? I have to wonder about this, though, David and uh, and Gene and Barry. Why the Earth? I, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm going to take a slightly different stance than Gene. I'm going to assume that most of the abduction reports are not true and that some portion of them are the same way I feel about sightings but that being said of all the planets that are out there and we know that there are billions of stars in our galaxy and we know that there are planetary systems around many of these stars what the heck is it besides music of course that makes you so interesting why that makes UFOs so interesting? humans Oh, humans so interesting. Maybe they like the Beatles and they decide to come over and find <laughs> what's going on. But of course, they. Yeah, that's an interesting question but right there. Let's assume for a moment that people are being abducted. My question is why? We're self destructive. We're a, a, a species that has a good amount of genetic mutation. I mean, you know, we get sick easily, we have all sorts of disease. What makes us such a compelling topic of interest for these creatures or extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional why us well if i could answer that uh, please of course i don't have the answer but to my way of thinking 
if we go out, if we were to be able to go out to uh, other planets and explore like uh, they're doing, and we find a primitive species, what would we do? We would try to uh, find out what makes these uh, these species tick and uh, what they're made of and uh, what what they're doing with their lives without trying to interfere uh, w with the natural progression of their uh, evolution. At the same time, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, we are, at least one of these species, experiment, genetic experiment. And they're, they have tinkered with our genetics uh, in the past and, and are continuing to do so, helping us uh, evolve. Why? Well, so that we will stop being such a warring race of people and stop killing ourselves and stop uh, polluting not only our world with all the pollutants we have, but with atomic weapons. But that, that also goes far beyond our, that pollution also goes far beyond our atmospheric borders and is beginning to threaten them. Now how so? Um, Assuming these beings yeah. are thousands, millions of years ahead of us, how could we threaten them? I can't think of anything we could do now that would threaten some race that exists in another dimension or is a hundred light years away. How? Well, I think the, uh, the domino effect will ultimately reach them. And uh, if not, I mean, if, if figure we mess up our entire solar system, that solar system is going to... Uh, Everything's connected. Let's put it that way. Everything's connected sooner or later. And even if even if they they don't feel threatened by us being so far away, perhaps they're just trying to to help us evolve so that we can be become part of the uh, uh, the galactic neighborhood, shall we say, and uh, be a part of that without destroying ourselves. You know, David, I have to respond to that because I, I okay. respect what you're saying. And I think you're saying it in the right spirit. But um, I have to agree with Gene. I don't think any human endeavor is going to endanger anyone but us. Um, I don't think we could mess up any major amount of the solar system. We are so far away from the other planets. Um, I, I, we could certainly destroy ourselves. But I'll qualify that. We could destroy ourselves, but we can't destroy our planet. If if we take ourselves out, the planet will recuperate. While it would be nice to think that some advanced civilization would want to, out of the goodness of whatever they have as a heart, help us, I suspect that, again, be no benefit to them to do this. That if anything, well, here's my own theory. I think, if anything, we provide entertainment <laughs> the, these creatures look at us the and they zoo. think, what will these silly humans do next? <laughs> I think in that sense, maybe they want to make sure that we provide fresh entertainment programming for the rest of the galaxy. Well, think of it this way. This way, We have to look at the ratings we're getting, David. <laughs> You've entered another dimension.
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Rey and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, joined by Barry Biedney, David's brother, talking about their UFO encounter in Venezuela in the 1970s. And, of course, there have been a tremendous number of sightings in South America, possibly more than elsewhere, and we'll have to get into that also. But now we're talking about the larger implications of potential UFO reality, and we also have joining us David E. Twitchell, He's a field investigator for the Michigan branch of MUFON. If you go to MUFON.com, you'll learn all the stuff that they offer. You can check out a lot of the cases. So let me backtrack something that's been lingering in my mind for the past hour. And as we get to the final third or quarter of this interview, I want to maybe throw this out. And that is, why is it, and we're in a more, more advanced country in the world here, or maybe the most advanced, although some might think some of the European and Asian countries are more advanced in some ways, and we think of Latin America as being somewhat backwards, with no insult intended to anyone, just the basic perception. So why is it that the UFOs seem to concentrate so much on South America, on Central America, etc.? The way I see it, and perhaps it's overly simplistic, but if civilizations evolve in similar fashions, perhaps we are a study of what they thousands and thousands of years and let's say perchance we had the ability to easily travel to the moon perhaps and in the moon there was a civilization of cave people living basically the way we lived tens of thousands of years ago and we could go observe that if for nothing else educational and historical purposes wouldn't we do that in the summer in the southern hemisphere could observe these people with less risk of detection at northern hemisphere wouldn't we choose to do that there's a risk here anytime you interact with a less advanced society you have the potential there that you're going to wreck that society as soon as they become aware of you there's going to be a problem it can cause problems and let's look at this now you have these ufo abductions and this is one of the issues that also bothers me we have all these abductions, and we don't know the agendas here, but we're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. How many times do you have to abduct a person, a being, a creature, before you've got the information you want? Why does it happen year after year? And isn't it also apparent, or would it be apparent to an advanced society, that the interaction, that experience is causing a change? in how that person behaves. It changes their entire lives. Look what it did with you, David Twitchell. Look what it did to your sister. 
This is not something that's benign. They changed your life for the better or worse. Yeah, I agree uh, that it is a life-changing, paradigm-changing event. But I don't think they they really care. I think they're they're pretty much uh, indifferent as to our feelings. However, they do tend to block memories. They try very hard to block your memories so that you can go on with your with your normal life. But isn't that really what we do out in the jungle with uh, lions and? Tigers and bears, oh my. <laughs> we yeah. anesthetize them. We uh, put implants in them. We're now using chips. We used to put these big boxes on them and follow them around. And now we put chips in there. We can uh, monitor their their uh, physiology and uh, uh, track them and find them and uh, check them out again and anesthetize them. Of course, to them. Uh, no time has passed. They just go to sleep. They, they they see something come. They see this helicopter coming. They don't know what the heck that is. And all of a sudden, the helicopter's gone. And uh, in the interim, they have been put. They have been anesthetized. So uh, these things are are happening too. And they're implanting us so they can find us. Why do they want to find us? Because we are their test subjects. Okay. The ones they have chosen are their test subjects. Mm. They want to find them again for the same reason we we anesthetize other animals in, in, in the wild. So to them, we're just animals in the wild. That's it. Mm. And well, if we were to go to another planet and find a primitive race, wouldn't we do the same thing? We have the technology to do it, and we have yeah, the inclination a... to do it. Why wouldn't we? I think that what Barry said plays right into this and makes a lot of sense. Um, they're simply studying us in the same way that we would be studying a lower life form. And as far as the, um, the, the, theory, my, the theory my brother has about why these things appear so much in South America, I think he's right in that uh, they, they know that there's less technological ability perhaps to be seen or to be detected in a place that's less technologically capable than, let's say, the sky over Washington or New York City. Or less likely to be attacked. I have a hard time believing that our weapons and our weapons technology will pose any serious threat. That's just my, my, my feeling. Yeah, on, on, the, uh, when you're com- on a comparative scale, you're right. However, uh, I do believe that we have brought them down either with weapons or our radar system has messed up their, uh, and that's the theory at Roswell in 47, is that our radar system messed up their navigational system, and two of them collided and and came down. But I believe that uh, they're vulnerable, and they know, you know, years, a few thousand years ago, back in the Bible days and ancient times, that they could land. I mean, what were we, what were we humans going to do? Throw sticks at and stones at them? Their uh, technologies and their weapons were far superior, and they also know knew that they w- we would revere them as gods. So we probably would not try to to bring them down or uh, attack them if they got out of their craft. But uh, today it's it's a little different, and uh, we do have not superior weapons, but weapons that would potentially hurt a vulnerable being like themselves. Well. I also feel that as technology advances in the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere, my gut tells me that sightings will probably become less frequent 
because, like I said, uh, 1974, when we went to Caracas, probably seven people in the entire city had video cameras. When I went last October, probably 80% of all my friends had cameras on their cell phones. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me pause here. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Biedney, Barry Biedney, David's brother, joins us. We were talking about David and Barry's experiences in Caracas, Venezuela, their UFO encounter, a very interesting encounter with many witnesses. We're also talking to David E. Twitchell, a field investigator for the Michigan branch of the Mutual UFO Network. Go ahead, Barry. Well, just reiterating, I feel that if these, these beings have any foresight into our technology, they realize that detection will become more of a reality because technology is spreading in this planet. So I think areas where you know they can safely observe are becoming highly restricted. In the past 10 to 15 years, because of the predominance of video cameras and technology in the mass market, in Mexico City, there's been a tremendous amount of video evidence gathered and analyzed so that's what has happened but what I, I think you're saying is probably true that it was easier for us to gather this evidence they would perhaps go to further lengths to hide themselves but then one has to ask the question why would they even why would they care if we knew about them or not I uh, see the whole thing about not getting involved in logical civilization and not not altering it might be cute on Star Trek, but does it have any real relevance in in our reality? Probably not. Yeah. I think it depends on what suits their uh, mission at the time. Because sometimes you say, well, if there it is, right in front of us. Other times you say, it's, it's veiled, or I can't see it at all. They're invisible to us. So it depends on what they're doing at the time. Uh, basically, if they really cared, if we, that we, they didn't want us to see them, they wouldn't allow us to see them. So if they do allow us to see them, why? That's, that's the question. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have the answers. There are no experts there. We're all just oh. groping in the dark. <laughs> that's the one that's thing that bothers me. And that's why we have the Paracast. And yeah. I just wonder, after all these years, the modern UFO era goes back to the 1940s, 60 years ago. And of course, sightings were reported before then. Let's think of the modern era. Do we know much more about them today than we did then? What do you think? David Twitchell. I think someone knows much more about them. And uh, the question was asked, you know, what? I just listened to the Bill Konkoleski uh, interview you, you did. Sure. I believe it was Bill Konkoleski. He's a good friend of mine. That about Area 51, do they really have crash disks and, and what have you? I believe they do. I think the the disclosure project is, is bringing forth uh, hundreds of uh, high quality insider witnesses that are coming forth and uh, asking for open congressional hearings. 
on what they know, and of course they've been ignored. But I do believe that uh, that there are technologies that we have technologies that could provide free energies to uh, to the world. And of course, our energy barons of today uh, don't think that's such a good idea because they're not done selling us oil yet. And well, they can always buy the companies that sell ethanol, so they wouldn't care about that either, would they? Well, no, I suppose not. Because I wondered about that. Listen, thank you very much. David E. Twitchell, he is a field investigator among his many hats for the Mutual UFO Network and the Michigan branch. Uh, he has a site called ufoimplications.com, ufoimplications.com. We learn more about him and about his books. And could you just tell us before I let you go, you've written two books now? I've written uh, two books on my own and one with George Filer, who... Uh gathers all these worldwide UFO sightings Okay. called uh, Filer's Files, Worldwide Reports of UFO Sightings. Hmm. All three of them uh, you can check out at uh, ufoimplications.com. And, of course, we have David Biedney and Barry Biedney. Thank you, everyone, for a very interesting session where we actually investigated a UFO sighting on the air and then discussed the implications and the larger implications of the field. This has been a great discussion, and it's only the first of many on the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You know, after listening to that, David, I wonder if I shouldn't undergo hypnosis to see if those crazy dreams I had as a kid represented anything at all other than just nightmares as a kid. But nobody has pointed to any psychological reason for them. Or maybe they're afraid to say that, Gene, you're crazy beyond belief. Okay, I'll be the one to tell you, Gene. You're crazy beyond belief. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I feel better now knowing I'm that. Glad I really do. This, of course gets the whole UFO thing even more intriguing because there's so many people out there who have seen unusual things and even though there's a lot of subjects we're going to explore in the future on the Paracast, UFOs will remain a major point of it because after all these years we still don't know an awful lot about what's going on. Let me give you another example. I know somebody who is a member, is an official with a major UFO organization now. He'll go unnamed because I don't have his permission to mention his name, but I will mention the experience. And that is, I met him in Minnesota in the 1960s. I was working at a small radio station. This is between jobs, you know, where we walked out of one job because the management at that station we thought were completely ignorant, and I told the guy off, we left. And between that job and the new job that was going to take over, I visited this person whom I'd known for a number of years since I was a teen. And he had undergone an experience involving a UFO and his girlfriend at the time, I don't know if he married her, I don't think he did, but he seemed very close. They had had strange follow-up experiences like 
the so-called so. men in black, people coming to their homes and demanding the information, saying that they're not allowed to talk about it, that kind of mm. thing. We've talked about men in black. The other thing is poltergeist-like phenomena, in other words, objects moving of their own volition, and to make things even more frightening, his girlfriend may or may not have been the victim of an attempted rape by an invisible being. And this what? man, this man was frightened out of his wits. What is stranger, though, is if you look at his writings after that, because he was somebody who was known as a writer in the field, and as I said, an official with a UFO organization, he, he went ahead and simply wrote about a normal, I call it normal even though it sounds weird, a more conventional extraterrestrial explanation for the UFO mystery. And there are people out there who will tell you point blank that it's a lot more complicated than that. They do not believe necessarily that spaceships are here. We've heard some of those discussions already on the Paracast where people say maybe it's interdimensional travel. People are traveling from one reality or universe to another, traversing some kind of wormhole or entranceway or something like that. So UFOs are not just aliens, which is wild enough as it is, but maybe aliens from another dimension, maybe visitors from our own future. It's not so simple anymore. No. Well, it never was simple. I no, mean, no. You know, when you look at the number of encounters and you look at the variety of encounters, we see, you know, people report a whole range of different types of beings, different types of craft. Uh, th there are some stereotypical things, like the cigar ship that we saw. That's a stereotypical craft shape. There's the obvious disc. But then there have been all sorts of sightings about things like um, strange triangular wedge-shaped ships that, you know, some of those appear to... Uh, it's hard to know because we now also know that there are secret aircraft in development by the United States government that have these same sorts of shapes. There have been all sorts of lights seen, like the lights over Phoenix that happened, what, like seven or eight years ago? Right. I didn't see those either. I was yeah. living in this area. You know, see, see, but, the space people don't like me. <laughs> not yet. Well, I wonder if they're listening to the show. or Remember, we don't know if they're space people or if they're interdimensional people or if they're from New Jersey in the future. Because they have to be from New Jersey if they're from the future. Oh, okay. Why New Jersey? I don't know. I was going to make some stupid joke about Bruce Springsteen and the aliens, but it, it didn't. It didn't gel in time. So. Oh, okay. We don't. We don't want that to happen. There are a couple of things I want to mention about the show tonight, Gene. Um, Go ahead. We did. We did have some audio glitches this time around that were, that were a little annoying. Um, so I want to make sure that our listeners know that we 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 we're trying to work out a lot of these technical details, but you know we're sort of on this cutting edge here of doing Skype conferencing. And um, we definitely had some problems, so I, I thank our listeners for being patient uh, with those issues, and hopefully the content stood on its own. But the other thing I want to mention, Gene, as I've st stated more than a couple of times on the show, I am taking the role of skeptic here, but it's important that our listeners know that the reason I'm doing that is because before I leave this earth, you know, in the normal form that one leaves when one dies, I'd like to understand a little bit more about what it is that I've experienced and what it is that I've seen. And that's why, I mean, I've read a lot of UFO books. A lot of this st stuff to me, quite frankly, is just hokey. A lot of it's, it is obviously just fabricated. And I even have issues with some of the people like Bud Hopkins who do regression hypnosis. I've, I've read some of Hopkins' books, and 
I, I sometimes get the feeling that there's something not quite right going on there. Hopefully at some point we can have him on the show and talk about that. But in general, I want our listeners to know that my experiences have made me more discerning and more analytical about trying to evaluate other people's experiences because of the fact that, like my brother pointed out, we did not see lights in the sky, Gene. We, we did not see random movement going on. What, what we saw was a very real object. I, I can't tell you what it was. I mean, I, to this day, I, I'm not quite sure. But there is one interesting note about the cigar shape in these ships, Gene, in that if you, if you look at structural design, and if you try to come up with what is the shape that can withstand the greatest amount of shear stress, if you're moving quickly, that cigar shape ends up having an incredible level of structural integrity, which makes me think that perhaps, just perhaps, it is indeed an interstellar craft. But that's just an intuition on my part. And, and, and just some knowledge about structural physics and, you know, like the shape of an egg is one of the most strongest structures in terms of, you know, you look at, at how an egg can withstand an impact. It's pretty amazing given the, 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 the thinness of the shell. The shape of a cigar ship, Gene, it's an optimum shape for moving very quickly and being able to withstand the sheer stress of any kind of movement of that type. You know what? Upcoming on the Paracast, Sherry Hansen-Steiger, who worked with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, and she'll tell us about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, not just the movie, but the book on which it was based. We'll hear from Don Ecker of UFO Magazine, and we'll also be talking about cryptozoology. What's that? Ooh, Ever strange. hear of Bigfoot? You will on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.